We are continuing our series on 1 Timothy. In the last two weeks, we're focused on the importance of the pastor's role in preaching the church, preaching the word of God. Like I said, in the last two weeks, or like Tim, Paul has said in 1 Timothy chapter 4, um, the highest priority of a pastor is to feed the word of God to the congregation. And the highest priority for the congregation is to listen to the word of God. That is the highest priority of a church. Remember, we study, we're studying 1 Timothy so that we will know what a true church looks like. And the fundamental principle, el numero uno, is faithful teaching and preaching of God's word and faithful listening and obedience to God's word. That's what a church primarily is. Now, there is, but human beings are experts at loopholes. I know, because I'm a lawyer. We're, if there are no loopholes, I will not exist. ChatGPT will do all my job, right? The loophole in our minds is this. We say, okay, great. I listen, Pastor Jay will preach. Pastor Eugene will preach, and I will listen. And Pastor Jay said, that's the highest priority. All right, that's what I'm going to do, and that is the extent of my Christian life, full stop. We can use what I just said and say, my, and we can tell ourselves that my primary being as a Christian is only to listen to the word of God and agree. But Paul in 1 Timothy 5 teaches us that's not the case at all. In fact, chapter 5 teaches us listening to the word of God is crucial, but, but the fulfillment of the word of God is actually using our physical bodies and our physical resources and our physical time in serving God and his people. Listening to the word of God is paramount. But, we're not, but if we're not obeying God's, what God has taught, then we're not really listening. Do you understand? There isn't a distinction between what we listen and how we act. No. How we, the, the, whether we truly understood and listened or not is determined by how we act with our physical things that we have in this life. That's one of Paul's main points in chapter 5. We are not only called to listen to the word of God, but practice the love of God onto the fellow believers in the church. Why? Because it's very good that we're preaching this, we're, listening, we're learning about this in May, because May is family month. Right? In Korea, in America, May is family month. Especially family month for me, because guess what? My wife's birthday is the end of May. Hooray. <laughs> right? Guys, I love women who were born in May. God bless them. I married one. But May is a busy time if you do. So it is a family month in May. It's, it's Parents' Day. It's Kids' Day in Korea, right? So we, we celebrate the family in the month of May. And that is very fitting. 
as we study about this chapter because God defines the family not only in terms of our biological connections, people that we're biologically connected with, but God defines our family as fellow believers in the faith. This is clear. Jesus says, he says, here are my mother and here are my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister. Jesus is giving us a broad definition of family. In the Old, Old Testament days, they define family as people that I'm physically, biologically related to. But Jesus' definition of family is family is more than biology. Family is determined by spiritual identity. And if you are a Christian, you're do, you are to view other Christians as your family members. And you are called to love your family, not only in theory, but in how you actually treat them in real life. The dominant theme in chapter 5 is basically... You know, put your, money where, put, your, put your money where your mouth is, which means if you say it, you got to do it. If you say that you're a Christian, then other Christians are your family members. Therefore, you need to physically take care of them. Because doing so, you are imitating Jesus Christ. What Pastor Wiggins said during the call of worship is, or prayer, I forget which one, Today, but it's absolutely true. Jesus Christ did not come into the world. Jesus Christ just didn't love us theoretically, right? Jesus Christ didn't say, oh yeah, I love you in theory. Jesus Christ is the one who actually came down from heaven to be a servant, to physically serve his people, and physically die for his people so that we will be saved. Christianity is farthest from this religion that says Christianity, love is only a theory. No, no, no. Jesus Christ says love is actual, means that you actually do things in real time. And therefore, because we're Christians, we're supposed to take care of us in real, take care of each other in real time. We are called to imitate Jesus Christ. All right. It's going to get exciting later on. But a little bit of warning. This is the nerdy part of the sermon. This is the nerdy part of the sermon. Ready? All right. It's a gift because I'm giving you the nerdy parts in the beginning so you can pay attention. Here we go. This is the nerdy part. Ready to go. The, the dominant theme that was kind of reoccurring in my mind over and over again in the past couple of weeks is the imitation of Jesus Christ. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave, up, gave himself up for us. So in Paul, in Ephesians 5, 1 to 2, he's saying Christians are called to be imitators of Jesus Christ. The word imitation was in my mind for the last two weeks. So I'm reading a book about Western philosophy, and I'm really nerding out. 
I really am. I'm trying to tell my daughter this, and she just gives me a blank stare. I'm trying to tell my wife this. She's giving me a blank stare. So I'm going to tell you this, and you're going to give me a blank stare. But this is what it is. Western philosophy generally starts with Plato. Okay? Generally starts with Plato. And this is Plato 101, the most fundamental element of Plato's philosophy. He's saying the world is comprised of forms and not forms. His mind, forms are eternal truth, something that exists outside of ourselves, right? Eternal truth, something that exists outside of ourselves. Things like beauty, things like justice, things like love, things like harmony, things, things like equity, all these concepts exist outside of ourselves, and Plato calls that forms. And Plato says what human beings are, that we are simply mimicking these external forms that are outside of ourselves. He's saying, why do people why are people driven by love? Because there is this concept called love outside of ourselves, and people have the desire to mimic this form, this eternal truth called love outside of ourselves. Are you with me? Are you bored, bored yet? It gets exciting. So Plato is saying human beings spend their entire life just imitating, mimicking these eternal truths that is outside of themselves. And that is absolutely true. Human beings are not independent, reasonable creatures. We spend our entire lives mimicking things, mimicking eternal values of things, imitating things. It's true. Look, yesterday, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm just see Gardens of the Galaxy with my daughter, right? I went to see Gardens of the Galaxy with my daughter, and we're sitting there in 30 minutes of trailer fest on my Lanta, right? I was watching it, and there was a new trailer with a Disney Pixar movie element or something. It's about fire and water or whatever. And we were looking at that trailer, and we groaned. Why? Because we've seen this movie before. Misunderstood daughter trying to find an adventure to find yourselves. That's as tale as old as time. Me and my daughter looked at ourselves, and we groaned because we saw that movie before. Why? Because Disney churns out repetitive movies over and over again. It's not Disney's fault, because that's what people do. People repeat ideas that are constant over and over and over again. People, without them knowing it, are imitators, are copies of things that influence them. It's true. Our cells, is it called meiosis? Meiosis, right? Our cells are in the business of constantly replicating. We're, we're, our cells are just constantly replicating. And scientists are saying that's how the laws of the universe work. Even the laws of the universe happen, no matter how complex they are, they happen in patterns. They, do, they have a repeated cycle over and over and over again. That's, how Sean, that's why Sean Stark has a job. Because there is this equal, this this mathematical naval ocean equation that happens over and over and over again. Everything is a repeated process. Now the question is, why is everything a repeated process? Christian's answer is, because the original source of all things is God. 
original source of all things is God. We are made in his image. Everything is made in his image. Therefore, it is inevitable that we, that we, that we, repeat, that we repeat him. Whether you're Christian or non-Christian, it is inevitable that because we have the image of God in us, we spend our entire lives trying to mimic him, repeat him over and over and over again. Jesus is saying, if you're a Christian, You imitate Christ, not because this is a cheesy, cliche religious concept. But this is because this is how God created you, and this is why Christ saved you. He saved you so that you will repeat who he is over and over and over again. And who is he? What is the thing that we need to repeat? We need to repeat his love for the church. Christ Reformed theology says Christ died for his people. Christ died for his church. Therefore, if you're a Christian, imitating him means serving and loving the people in the church. Do you understand? Nerd part is over. Let's get to the exciting part. The the issue that Paul Paul addresses in chapter 5, the first issue that Paul addresses in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, he's addressing the issue of correcting Christians' error in the church. He's talking about rebuking the member, disciplining the members of the church. Paul is saying, one of the most fundamental ways that you love the people of God in the church is that when you see them sinning, when you see them in error, the loving thing to do is to correct them. Our world says the most hateful thing to do is to judge them and point out their errors. The world says that's the most hateful thing that you can do. Paul says the most loving thing you can do is to point out their error and pray that their errors will be corrected. These are Jesus' words, right? What did Jesus say? Matthew chapter, Matthew, Matthew 8, 18, 15. If your brother or sister sins, Jesus says, go and point out their faults just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Jesus says, if you find someone who's sinning, the loving thing to do is not to be afraid of them and not tell them anything. But Jesus says, go. Tell them. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. When you are looking at people who are sinning, it is love that goes and tries to correct it. That is love. Because when they are sinning, they're damaging themselves and they're damaging the people around them. In Galatians, Paul says, we reap what we sow. If we reap sin and rebellion, we will, we will, if we sow sin and rebellion, we will reap death and destruction. It's true. Is the loving thing to do 
just to watch people make a mess out of their lives and say, you do you. I respect your freedom. You do you. Is that the loving thing? Look, for example, back to last week's sermon, it is God's design for us to listen to his word to be sanctified. If someone is choosing not to come and listen, their soul is being numbed and distant from God, which has consequences, right? Is a loving thing to do leave them in their numbness and dryness and deadness? Or is it to lead them to the word of God so they can drink from God? What is a loving thing to do? We're called to, the reason why we're called to discipline people who are sinning is because that's what God does and we are called to mimic God. If God loves you, he will continually prune you so that you will bear more fruit. Jesus in John chapter 15 says, my father is the gardener. Any fruit that bears fruit, he prunes so that you'll bear more fruit. How does a gardener prune? I need a gardener because... My wife planted rose bushes like three years ago, and she hasn't touched it since. I'm, you know, it's, it's the Amazon jungle in my, in, my, in my yard because, don't tell my wife this, I hope she'll come in 10 minutes, I hope, right? But you need a gardener to prune my yard, lawn. If the Father loves you, Jesus says, he will prune you. Hebrews chapter, what, what chapter is the last verse in Hebrew? Hebrews chapter 12. For God disciplines the one he loves. And chastises every son whom he receives. If God loves you, he will discipline you. Why? Because I was just inspired by the praise song today. So that, you, so that he can restore our right spirit within you. The right spirit is a spirit that is alive. A mind that is sane. A spirit that is true. A spirit that loves good things and hates evil. A spirit that is conforming in love. There is the right spirit, the spirit of God. When we're sinning, we're living contrary to that spirit. We have the wrong spirit. So in order for God to restore right spirit within us, he prunes us. He disciplines us. Writer of Hebrews says, it's not pleasant when God prunes us. It's not. It's not pleasant. But it's needed. 
for us to bear fruit. How does God prune you? How does God lead you to repentance? How does God point you, point your sins out and restores you to a right spirit? Primarily through the word of God. James chapter 1, word of God is like a mirror. You look at it and it reveals truth to you. It reveals truth about God. It reveals truth about you through the word of God. As you study, as you look into the word of God, not just blindly reading it, but actually studying it and looking into it, he will reveal himself about himself to you. And as a consequence, when you know things about him, you will certainly see things about you. And you will repent. I did not know I was a prideful man. I thought in my mind I was a very humble, meek man. My wife calls me crazy. But the word of God says I'm not. I am a man of many faults. And I realize this as I read about him. The word of God reveals truth. It reveals truth about you, but it also reveals about truth about the, of the forgiveness of Christ. It is through the word of God that he reveals truth about you to you. The word of God also, God also prunes you through providence. Providence is the events, the, the simple definition of providence is the everyday occurring events in your life. God uses the events in your life to prune you. Do you understand? I'm not saying all the things that bad that that, that is bad happened to you is your because of your sin's fault. I'm not saying that. But regardless of whether your, your sin is a cause of these like these things happening to you or not, what is sure is God uses these things to reveal your sin. So that he can correct them. When God tore things out of my life, whether it's a job, whether it's a trusted friendship, when God tore these things out of my life, I look into these things and realize, oh my gosh, they were my idols. He needed to tear these things out of me. So that I can know that I only have him and he is enough. I will never, I can never say that he is enough unless he tears these things out from me. Do you understand? I idolized a vision of a ministry. When I first got here, I idolized, I had a certain view of ministry, certain view of the way you guys ought to be. And boy, did God change me about that. If he loves you, he will discipline you to restore right spirit within you. If he doesn't love you, he will be Bruno Mars. You're amazing just the way you are, kids. If he doesn't love you, he'll let you stay in that delusion that you are just fine the way you are. May I ask, which one are you? Are you amazing just the way you are? Or is God continuously restoring a right spirit within you? 
Because God is a God who does this, we are called to imitate God by loving our family, by putting out, by disciplining them, by, by just going to them and talking to them about their sins. And boy, oh boy, there are many sins that are happening in the church of Ephesus when Paul is writing this letter. You can imply what was going on in Ephesus by the things that Paul addresses in this letter and in 2 Timothy. What are some of the things that are going on in the church of Ephesus? People were cray-cray, yo. Some of the older men, right? They were, they were either false teachers or they were advocating false teachings. Some of the older men thought they were too busy to serve the church of God, so they, weren't, they were advocating their responsibilities. Some of the older men were not loving their wives. Some of the older men were full of envy, and they were just constantly arguing each other over things that do not matter. Have you been to church like this? They just argue over things that don't matter at all. So there were some of these older men who were seeking after false teachings, they were prideful, they were argumentative, they were envious, they weren't loving their families, and yet they thought they were spiritually mature enough to lead the church. There were some men in the church who says, I am mature enough to lead the church, and yet their house, their homes are falling apart. Older men, I like this. Younger men, they were being led astray by false teachers. Younger men, they were too busy to provide for their own families. Younger men were also argumentative and jealous, and they, they were corrupt. They were money-hungry. They were discontent. Older women, there were a lot of bossy women in the early church. Hey, happy International Women's Month two months ago. Bossy women, I love you, right? You should speak your, right, all that good things, right? But there were women in the church who thought it is their God-given right to take the aim of the church and drive the church the way they, saw it, the way they see it fit. They weren't submitting to any authority. They go, nope. I'm a, I'm a woman, hear me roar. There were other women, older women in the church who were so rich that they used the church as a, as a, as a fashion, as, as, a, as a runway. To, to display how wealthy they are. There are some older women in the church who are, who are nosy at other people's business, gossipy about other people's business. Oh, they were gossipy because, you know, they love the church. But by loving the church, they were, hold, they were telling gossip about each other. I mean, do you know people like that? Oh, I love the church. Guess what? I love the church. But the way that I love the church is by talking gossip about the people in the church. They were, that, were there women like that. There were women in the church, who, older women in the church, who were luring younger men to have a relationship with them. There were younger women in the church who were using their youthful sexuality to draw attention to themselves, who were tempting men, who were enticing men, who are, who are, trying, who are living an immoral lifestyle. 
That's the church Timothy inherited from Paul. Thanks, Paul. Ephesus was not embraced. You guys are so lovely. You guys are just sane. A little too quiet for my taste, but sane. Ephesus was crazy. Paul says, how does Timothy deal with these people? If I were Timothy, every Sunday will be a rebuke fest. Every Sunday, I'll use the pulpit to rebuke the people in the church. This group you're messing up. That group you're messing up. I would, I would just torch the place with Bible verses. But interesting, Paul says, don't do that, Timothy. Verse 1? What does he say in verse 1? I don't know, because its pages are mixed up. Where's the pages? Oh, it was right in front of me. How stupid. He said, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. At his face. Whoa, what? These older men were like not loving their wives. They were abdicating their responsibility. They were false teaching. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage them? What is Paul, a liberal Christian? What is going on here? Let's look at the word rebuke. The word rebuke here means, what does it mean? It means to, it is to strike, beat, and blow. It means to beat up people with your words. Timothy, I know these people are cray-cray and they're messing up and they're making you angry. And you are tempted to beat people up with your words. But don't do that. He's not saying don't correct them. Rather than correcting them like this, what do you do? You encourage them. Encouragement doesn't mean, hey, you're doing a good job. You're just fine the way you are. That is not encouragement. That's just crazy. Encouragement means pointing out their error with respect and kindness. Look, that, like, you know, a couple of years ago, I think I told you, maybe some of you know this story. They were, like, first, like, a long time ago here. At the end of a prayer meeting, there were like three members of the church sat me down at the office over there, and they took turns telling me exactly what was wrong with me for an hour and a half. You're the tribunal. Literally, three people just telling me, and poor Haran just sitting there listening. Haran's a witness. They were going around for an hour and a half telling me exactly what was wrong with me. I'm glad I have thick skin or delusion of grandeur because I would have quit. Paul says, don't do that. You have to correct them. But you have to correct them 
with respect, gentleness, kindness, and love. Why? Because the purpose of the correction is so that they will turn away from their sins and come to their right senses. And you're not going to come to their right senses if you beat them up with your words. Once again, difficult conversations must be had. They must. I'm not loving you if I don't have difficult conversations with you. They must be done with kindness and gentleness, grounded in truth, yeah? But delivery is kindness and gentleness. Why? Because that is how Christ treats us and corrects us. Older men, people who are biologically older than you, that means basically, besides for Pastor Ujin, me. You, how you treat me. Because I'm older than 99.9% of you. Treat the older men with respect as you would treat, correct your father. Are you going to beat up your father with your words, man? Encourage the younger brother, younger men as brothers, which means in humility. Don't think you know better just because you're older. Just because you're older than your younger brother, it doesn't mean that you're better than them. Approach them with humility and with the love of a brother, a brother who wants to take care of his little brother, who wants the best thing for his brother, who wants to guide his little brother. You know, I was like, Watching an interview with Adam Sandler, I don't know where I got this. But Adam Sandler's career, he said it took off because his brother encouraged him to pursue stand-up. Adam Sandler said, if it wasn't for my older brother, I wouldn't be here. Because my older brother guided me and encouraged me. If you are an older brother of the faith, then you are to humbly lovingly guide your younger brother in the faith. Encourage older women as mothers with gentleness and kindness. I know some of you don't treat your mother with gentleness and kindness because let's pray, there, there, there may be difficult people, your parents, right? I'm not saying they are, assuming they are, some of them. My mother's not that easy to get along with. But you treat them with gentleness. And kindness. When you correct them, yes, have difficult conversations with them about the way they dress, about how they preen themselves, but do it respectfully and gently. And as when you're encouraging younger women, this is for pastors he's talking about, when you're encouraging, correcting younger women, you need to correct them with purity. What? What does that mean, purity? It means protecting their chastity, protecting their sexual purity. Paul understands that pastors, men, when they, with good intentions, they go and they try to incur or they, like counsel younger sisters. But oftentimes, many times, that relationship turns into something weird and inappropriate. 
Have you experienced such things happening? I have in many churches. In fact, in most churches that I've been to, these things always kind of happen, especially in the youth group setting. Cool youth pastor, let me counsel the 10th grade girl. And things become weird. Not only youth pastors, but pastors, when they treat, when they counsel younger women, Paul says, protect their purity. Because this is how it works. Guys, I'm going to, inside baseball, how the mind of the pastor works. Not mind of the pastor, generally speaking. Pastors are generally isolated and lonely. They want to feel important. But most of the time, congregation is busy. They're all doing their own thing. Pastors are just alone in their studies, Monday through Friday, just thinking to themselves. And they're men, so they want to feel important. And when a young woman comes comes into and they need counseling, and when their initial counseling seems to make a difference in that young woman's life, they go, oh, I'm so unimportant. She respects me. She respects me. No one gets me. That young woman gets me. Therefore, strange feelings develop. This happens in the church so many times. It's cliche. Paul says, protect your charity. Protect your chastity. And embrace spiritual counseling with young single women, I think primarily has to be done with older sisters. It is inappropriate for me and Pastor Ujin to, to, to have a counseling session, repeated counseling session with a single woman by ourselves. It is wholly inappropriate and we shouldn't do it. We should protect the single women of our church. Paul says, treat people like this. The loving thing to do is to treat people like this. We have to deal with the widow part in two weeks from now. But let me, since today's Mother's Day, let's talk about briefly, let's talk about Paul's main point when he talks about the widows. In the early church, there were many widows in the church. Widows, especially in those days, lived more difficult lives because their social status, their economic status was tied to their husband. When the husband dies, many women are left with nothing. And it isn't as if they can go and work at Walmart or Amazon or 7-Eleven somewhere. Jobs are hard to get for women because it was primarily a very physical society. So there were financial needs that women, the widows have. And that's true in the church of Ephesus. The Bible is clear. If the church has widows and those who are marginalized economically, it is the church's call to take care of them. We will get into more of this two weeks from now. But Paul says, interesting enough, the church should take care of only those who are truly widows. What? Church's responsibility, Paul says, is for the church to take care of the women who are truly widows. Who are the truly widows? 
The true widows, economically speaking, are women who, don't, who have lost their husbands and who don't have family members to take care of them. True widows are people who, whose husband passed away, plus those who don't have any family member to take care of them. Those are the true widows. If you are a widow but have family members who can take care of you, the church is called not to take care of you. The family's job is to take care of you. This is a brief point, and I'll end it briefly. Paul says it clear in verse 4. It is a very godly thing to do for people to take care of their family members, especially your elderly parents. The word godly here means imitating God in thought, in morality, and in action. Godliness is not just some religious, aesthetic lifestyle, but godliness has to do with how you treat people with your time and resources. That's what godliness is. You can't say, I just think about God all the time and not do anything and make you godly. What makes you godly is doing what God tells you to do. And the most fundamental thing that God tells us, all of us to do is to take care of our parents. You can speak in tongues. You can speak wonderful sermons. You can go to missions all the, all, all the, everywhere in the world. But if you are not taking care of your family members, Paul says, then you are, no, you are, you are worse than an unbeliever. You need to take care of your parents. Don't say that you're a mature Christian. And ignore the needs of your family members, especially your parents. Look, man, your parents are elderly. They're living in a society that don't understand them nor care about them. They, they don't, the society doesn't speak their language. They're living, a, a, they're living as foreigners in a foreign land. They can't go back to Korea because when they go back to Korea, there's nothing for them there. Korea society won't embrace them. U.S. society won't embrace them. Who's going to embrace them? You. I saw a news article in a Korean, Korean, like, you know, free, those Korean free cable channels. There's an apartment complex in in Montgomery County, Maryland, where there was over like 100 elderly Korean people living there. And they have nowhere else to go. Korea won't accept them. U.S. culture won't accept them. Their kids are too busy to take care of them. So they're just there. Lost. If you are a child with one of those people in that apartment complex, and if you're a Christian, How are you a Christian? Right? 
There's some of you here who take care of your family members, and you guys are my heroes. You really are. I'm not going to say who, because I don't want to, you know, give attention, like embarrass them. But there's some of you here who are really taking, taking care of your parents. And you're my hero. I'm not going to look at them. But God bless you. For you are doing God's work. Don't think because you agree with what I say, and maybe you can, you can, maybe you can even regurgitate what I say. And that makes you a mature Christian. The maturity is indicated by how you treat your family members. We'll talk about this more next week because I have to give time to Yoel. But these are the main points. One, if God loves you, he'll prune you. Two, it is the most loving thing to gently have a talk with the people whom you are seeing spiritually struggle. And three, be really good to your mom and dad. Be really good to your mom and dad. For that's God's call for you. Let's pray.